Psalms 81, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the full moon on our feast day, for it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of God of Jacob, of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. I heard a language that I did not know. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble, and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved to you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, Yahweh, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But no, my people would not listen. Israel did not want me around. So I let them follow their own stubborn desires, living according to their own ideas. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, that Israel would follow me walking in my paths. How quickly I would subdue their enemies. How soon my hands would be upon their foes. Those who hate Yahweh would pretend obedience to him, but they would be doomed forever. But I would feed you with the finest wheat. I would satisfy you with wild honey from the rock. How many of us want to be satisfied with God's wild honey from the rock? But he says that there's a conflict. And the conflict is that his people are not tuned to his voice. His people are too sure in their heads of their own way. And so they cannot be transformed as they walk in the path of his command. He says they... I, his judgment on his people for their stubbornness was that he let them have their way. So I let them follow their own stubborn desires, living according to their own ideas. There's a way that seems right to a man. You know, there's a lot of ways that we know are wrong. And sometimes we tiptoe down those paths and then retrace our steps in remorse. But the most dangerous path is the one that we're sure is right. Not right by revelation. Not right because God spoke it. But right because we decided it so. There is a way that seems right to a man and the end thereof is death. He says it two times in one book. And in this chapter in Psalms 81, the Lord is saying that his judgment on a people is simply to let them follow their own stubborn ideas. Now, a stubborn person wants God to let them have their way. And when he doesn't let them have it, they think that is an unkindness. They treat that as disrespect to themselves. They don't realize that God's judgment is when he lets go and says, Okay, have it your way. You just 
close your eyes for a minute, and you think of all the things that you want in your life right now. And you ask yourself, is it possible that the Lord is preventing what I want out of mercy, out of kindness? And is it possible that if he ever gave me what I asked for, it would be my judgment? Amen. Israel would not listen. Israel did not want me around. So I let them follow their stubborn desires, living according to their own ideas. Oh, that my people would listen. Oh, that Israel would follow me, walking in my paths. We know the Lord's path is narrow. We spoke about it Sunday. We know that it is difficult, and we know that few find it. But we also know that He will not let us strike our foot against a stone. We also know that He upholds us to walk on eagle's wings. Amen. We also know that He will keep us in the path. And in keeping His commandments, there is great joy. So however difficult they are, they're worth walking if he's with us. But then he says, how soon, if they would just listen, if they just quit their stubbornness, if they just give up right here in between their heads, how soon, how quickly I would subdue their enemies. There are forces that wage war against our souls. There are spiritual forces that want to pull us down to defeat. Suction faith right from our hearts. Sink us in the mire of hopelessness. And God would quickly subdue those enemies. Whatever battle with the flesh... Whatever temptation toward pride, whatever ambition of worldliness or vain conceit, God has a quick, a decisive victory. But that victory does not come for the one who stubbornly sticks to his own ideas and to his own plans. Amen. It comes to the man who commits his way to the Lord, trusts also in him, and finds that God will bring it to pass. How many of us want a decisive victory? The Lord says, how quickly I would subdue their enemies. How soon my hands would be upon their foes. Would you like the Lord to grab that raccoon on your back and cast it into the abyss? Would you like him to put his hands on that affliction of soul and spirit. Amen. That crippling setback and attack. You want God to grab it. That's all he's waiting for. And then he says, those who hate Yahweh would pretend obedience to him. So he says there are people who because of a lack of love know the thing to do that is right, and they pretend to do it with all their heart. But they are doomed forever. Are you hearing something like you maybe never thought this was in the Bible? Is that, is that in my Bible? 
That's how I felt when I was reading this this afternoon. Amen. How many of us know what it means to set out on a course and try and fall on our face again and again and again and feel that our prosperity is doomed. And I don't mean financial. I mean our obedience, our victory is doomed forever. Well, who is the person whose victory is doomed forever? The one who pretends what? Obedience to God. The one who, yes, Lord, yes, but has no intention to change their viewpoint and see their life transformed to match. That is one who pretends obedience and has nothing but doom forever to expect. But he says, but I would feed you with the finest wheat. He starts by saying, open your mouth. Hmm. What scripture does that make you think of? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Amen. And he says, what does it say? It does not say who shall ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. And who shall descend into the abyss to bring Christ up? But what does it say? The word is near you. The word of his power. The word that breaks the rock in pieces. The word the centurion referred to when he said, Only speak the word and my servant will be healed. The word Paul referred to when he said, Nothing can stand against the truth but only for the truth. The word that Jesus referred to when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The word of God, the word that formed the universe, this potential energy, this capacity to create, to transform, to heal, to break chains, to set at liberty the captive. This word, Paul says, the righteousness of faith speaks like this. The word is near you in your heart and in your mouth. Right there. The Lord says, open your mouth and I'll feed you. What's he going to feed you with? He's going to put his reality into your heart. He's going to put his truth in your mouth. He's going to speak and you're going to say, yes, Lord. And your mind is going to change. You're going to say, that's not how I saw it, but I'm changing the way I see it right now. Thy word, O God, is settled forever in heaven. It's not subject to my opinion. In Isaiah 65, he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good. What is that way? Following their own thoughts. A people who continually provoke me to my face. What does Isaiah 65 say? Says provokes God to his face. It is a people who live by the precepts of their own opinions. And not by the word of his power. It is a provocation to God. When we commit our way to the Lord. But then walk in the precepts of our own choice, our own will, instead of his commands. 
We already know the Scripture ten chapters earlier in the same book of Isaiah where he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than yours, and my thoughts than yours, says the Lord. God is not a man. He doesn't think like we do. He doesn't plan like we do. We got our notions and we got our opinions, but he wants us to know that his viewpoint is utterly different. The distance between my perspective and God's vision is immeasurably apart. Immeasurably distant. You can't measure the space between heaven and earth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and 2, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know anything as he ought to know. There's a way of knowing that is just your thoughts taking possession of certainty. And that's not a conviction. But when God speaks, faith comes by hearing. And when faith takes possession of certainty, that's a conviction. Did you follow what I said? But when your thoughts take possession of certainty, that's just an opinion. And it may be a prison. And it may be a judgment that God eventually releases you to. In Romans 1, he says, When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. There's a certain kind of speculation, there's a certain kind of imagination that is folly. It's not wisdom, it's not truth. And it doesn't set anybody free. Brother Zeke, you got us started on this. We want transformation. Do you want to stay caught in the prison of your own ideas? Do you want to be that one whose mouth is empty, who God holds in his hand honey from the rock, but you never taste of it? You never know the satisfaction. I will feed you with the finest wheat. I will satisfy you with wild honey from the rock. You never know that fulfillment in your life, that energizing of fulfillment, because you are stuck in your stubborn desires and your own ideas. And I quote, We need to recognize that as long as our minds are the seat of decision-making instead of the Spirit of God, we know nothing as we ought to know. We are being deceived. We are deceived and being deceived, Paul says. But we can come to a place of surrender. And the greatest extent of surrender is to acknowledge that I don't know how to know. And I don't know what to know, but I know who to know. And I'm going to let him show. And I'm going to follow where he goes. Amen? It's not going to be me. It's going to be him. It's going to be a relational conviction in the presence of God. Not an intellectual certainty in what our minds can calculate and conclude. Repentance can be described in many legitimate ways and 
definitions. But I think a legitimate description of repentance is just what I just said. Losing that knowing of the flesh and groping toward a relationship where you can know by the Spirit. And you do not trust the evaluations of the carnal mind, which is the seat of human pride. To be carnally minded is death, and repentance is dying to that reign of death and saying, I want to know differently, God. Have you ever looked at someone from a distance and thought you knew them, perhaps drew some conclusions about them, and when you got to know them, you found out that they were a really ordinary, wonderful, kind person, and you kind of secretly chided yourself and hoped that they didn't know what you once thought about them? Well, the flesh, it knows in part, and its primary medium for knowing is fear. It knows everything through a lens of self-protection, of dread, of fear of losing, right? But the knowing that is life-giving, that is gnosko, that is relationship, is, it's not a knowing through fear, it's a knowing through love, and it's a knowing through trust. And the trust that God elicits from us, it needs no further proof of its validity. God, we may say, well, I don't know if I can trust. Oh, yes, you do. If Jesus died on the cross, you know you can trust. If he bled and gave his last drop of strength and life for you, then you know whom you can trust. You can trust him. And I'm not asking you to trust people per se. I'm asking you to trust God and learn to detect God in other people in as much as his love is with them. But if you can't trust God, then you're just a liar. If you can't trust God, then Christ is not crucified and you're dead in your sins. But if he died on the cross for you and you have redemption through him, then you can trust him. Because what you can trust is legitimate love. And John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We have no other definition of love. This is it. This is the seminal definition, the defining moment. Love was the cross. And the cross happened. If you don't believe it happened, you have no business being here. If you do believe it happened, then you have no business holding to your distrust. Because you can know God through the Spirit. You can relate to Him in the Spirit. You can pray to Him and feel His presence. You can seek Him and find Him. You can knock on His door and it will be opened. You can ask and the Lord says He will answer. In fact, He says, in the day you seek Me with all your heart, I will be found by you. But what it really is is not a lack of trust. It's too much trust. Too much trust in self. And to be carnally minded is death and the carnal man is not subject to the law of God and is incapable of doing so. He can't subject himself to the law of God. So the person who cannot trust, what is the law of God, brothers and sisters? It's the law of love, right? Isn't that what he says? So the law of God is love and the person who cannot subject himself to the law of love is that person who is still trusting in themselves. They are that shrub in the desert. That will not see when prosperity comes, as the Bible says. Cursed is he who trusts in man 
Amen. He won't see when prosperity comes. He's a shrub in the desert and so on and so forth. And he's incapable of trusting God because he trusts self. And self doesn't allow you to trust God. Self is in competition with God. That's why self has to be put to death. That's what the brother was saying. Brother Kenny, he was saying his grandmother won't surrender to death, but he was saying, okay, God, I need to learn to surrender to this death to my will. Your will is set up as a counterposed God against the Lord. And they can't both coexist in the same space, namely your heart and mind. One of them's got to come down and the other's got to be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. Are you willing to crown your will king of kings and lord of lords? Are you the alpha and the omega? Are you the beginning and the end? No, I don't think so. But there's somebody who is. Brother Simeon told about being in prison. And he's told us before that on the night his life began to turn, he was reaching for a legal pad to write a suicide note, thinking to exit this world. But as he pulled out his pencil and he began to scribble on that pad, the words of the Lord sounded in his brain, because the word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. Though you make your bed in hell, though you take the wings of the morning and flee to the uttermost parts of the sea, the word is just always right there, one step away from trusting it, one step away from obeying it. And this word began to come into his head that went something like this. Don't you want to tell your dad he was right? Because you'd lived your whole life on the premise that you were right and he was wrong. So now you're concluding your life. It's like the one thing you want to do is be truthful. You were right. But as he begins to scrawl out those words, more starts to pour forth. And he says that he wadded it up and threw it in the garbage. He was so disgusted with what he wrote, but then he took it out of the garbage, put it in an envelope, and sent it home. And Lazarus was coming out of his tomb with one decision to say, I ain't the Alpha and the Omega. I ain't the beginning and the end. Somebody else is. The Lord Jesus is. Amen? But Jesus' love was working through Dad. And so in that case, you needed to tell Dad, you're right, I'm wrong. And what he thought was going to be the last scrawl of a dying man was the first gasp of a resurrected man. Just one decision, I'm wrong, you're right. My will begins to crack. And with it, the dominion of slavery and oppression and misery that is always the domain of the flesh. When we know who we are, we don't like it. I've heard some people say it produces a gag reflex in them when they see who they are. In fact, I've heard some people say that they have physically vomited when they got a true sense of how ugly their flesh was. The man who is the paragon of patience and who was considered a righteous man and was God's select servant among all the people of the earth, when he saw himself the way God saw him, his response, that is Job's response, was it says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, there's a version of you with Jesus on the throne, and that's a servant, and that's a friend, and that's a child of God. 
And that version of you is wonderful. But there's a version of you where you're on the throne. And that's a slave. And that's a liar. Deceived and being deceived. Grasping and groveling. Cheating. Resisting God. Entrenched in stubbornness. Living by your own desires. And that is an ugly, abhorrent, detestable creature. And that version of us must be seen. Not once and not twice. But it must be always before us. We will not live with the appropriate humility that releases divine grace and capacity if we do not stay aware of the ugliness and the deception and the tactics of our rotten version of self. James said that looking at God's truth was like looking in the mirror. When do you look in the mirror? I remember when I was 12 years old at the back of a church, somebody brought a mirror and I looked one time and mm, it was ugly, but I never looked back. Does that pretty much describe our experience with the mirror? How many of us have a regular encounter with the mirror? Why did James say that we have to look at truth like we look at the mirror? Because you stare at it every morning and you prepare your day based on what you see in the mirror. And you adjust to be prepared for the day based on the feedback of the mirror. And he's suggesting to us that we've got to start our day every single day staring into the unflinching truth of God that reflects the ugliness of who we are. And he says that the person who can't change is the person who looks at how ugly his flesh is and turns around and forgets. How many of us know that when we see how ugly we are, we wish we could forget? <laughs> huh? You ever seen yourself in a picture and wished you hadn't seen it? Come on now. <laughs> oh, brother, that's awful. Who is that? I could elaborate, but your mind is already doing it, so for the sake of efficiency, I'll move on. When you see something beautiful or glamorous or strong or noble or praiseworthy about yourself, you just dwell on it all the time. You want to see it. You want to remember it. You want to go back and look at it. You want someone to tell you again and again. But when you see ugliness, you don't ever want to see it again. You want to get past it. You want to get past it. Okay, but I'm past that. No, you will never be free from it until you say, I am going to face this every day. Paul said, I know that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now, I need you to be aware that he did not say, I know that in my flesh, nothing good used to dwell. He did not put it in the past tense. He put it right there in the present tense. He knew that he had a flesh. And he was determined to make that flesh his slave, knowing if he didn't, he was going to become its slave. And he said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. He was still aware of it. The person who lives with that image in the back of their mind is a person who limps 
like Jacob is a person who's bowed in their thoughts and self-appraisal in humility. And that bowed person is one who receives the grace of God. Because he says he gives grace to the humble. How many of you ever thought you might have looked a certain way, changed to be a certain style or way, and then you saw a picture and you realized it wasn't what you thought? You were dismayed. But more importantly, you were surprised. Because you imagine yourself one way. If I were to see myself on video, and praise God there's no video in here, but if I were to see myself on video, I would be revolted by what I see right now. If I were to go back and look at this meeting on video, I would be repulsed by it. It's just awful. Because we don't see ourselves the way other people see us. They may accept us on some level, but we always cast ourselves in a better light. How many of you have ever heard yourself on recording and thought, do I really sound like that? And how many of you were not consoled when your neighbor said, yes, sounds just like you? <laughs> oh, no. My point is we do not honestly evaluate ourselves. We have this internal version of ourselves that is straight up baloney. And we all do it. Do you have a better sense of what you sound like or does your neighbor have a better sense of what you sound like? Do you have a better sense of what you look like or does your neighbor have a better sense of what you look like? Your neighbor is that mirror and I preached a whole message about who's your mirror. But I'm coming back to it. Because when you start your day, you've got to look in that mirror and you've got to see how ugly you are. I've got to see how ugly I am. And when I see that, I can make adjustments while standing there in the mirror. I can make adjustments to my attitude. I can make adjustments to my expectations. I can make adjustments to my posture, my spiritual posture. And I can live saying, Lord, don't let this ugly version take over my life. Now, when, when, I, when I walk into my day with that bowed attitude and somebody comes along and ticks me off and pushes my button, you know what? The devil doesn't get what he wants. Like Jesus who prepared in the garden, I have prepared. I have looked in the mirror and I have adjusted myself until what I see in the mirror looks ugly but broken looks ugly but enslaved, looks ugly but under the dominion and control of the Holy Spirit. And now I can approach the day. And, and, and when I approach the day in that posture, the devil does not get his way. I tell you, you who trip up perennially, you who are offended. G give me that scripture. Somebody who remembers that scripture, he is not an... an and he is not offended. How does it go? He who loves God's word has great peace and nothing shall offend him. And God's word is the mirror here. He who loves the truth has great peace and nothing shall offend him. You who are perennially offended 
and peeved and totally undone by other people's comments, words, misbehavior, sin, transgression. It doesn't matter. You did not walk into that day with that bowed posture. I promise you. I assure you, you did not. And if you felt that for a season you walked in victory and then all of a sudden it slipped out, all that happened is you hung a sheet over the mirror or at least a thin screen so that it wasn't quite as vivid an ugly picture as it should be every morning. You say, but I want to get past that. Isn't that what David said? That he wanted to get past it? My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Isn't that what Peter said? No. Forget not what manner of man you are. Paul, Peter, David. Why could they live in grace? Because they lived having adjusted their attitude, posture, approach, look, everything based on that look in the mirror that reminded them of Mr. Ugly. You say, well, okay, but what if I don't see what others see? Well, then you need to pray and you need to ask God to send you people who will reflect honestly and tell you the truth. Put your dukes down and the kindest thing they can ever do is tell you how wretchedly ugly you are when you return to that flesh. Amen. Now, I mean that. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. A kind person does not watch their spouse leave the house with a giant cowlick going forward looking like the milk cow has just had her way with the back of his head. It's not love to always issue a compliment. Or if someone has skipped a button and embarrass themselves, you're going to quickly go over because you love them. And if we could start to recognize correction as that kind of protecting love that says, I know if you knew, if you saw what I saw, you'd want to adjust this. Then we would, we would be less set up for big epic meltdowns that only give the devil pleasure. Amen. We would be able to walk in humility and dependent on each other. Samuel asked Saul a question. He said, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Burn offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? And I'm going to ask you, do you know the answer to that question? You know, the flesh is willing to do great things. Because great things for God can flatter the flesh. But the flesh is not willing to be obedient, whether in doing great or small, because that denotes losing control, surrendering to the will of another. And that's what the flesh doesn't want to do. If the flesh could be a hero for Jesus, it would become a Christian. And if the flesh could be vain and vainglorious for Jesus, it would become a Christian. But at the end of the day, the humility God asks for is dependence, trust, and obedience. Not great exploits that we can take pride in, 
What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as witchcraft and stubbornness as idolatry. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you. How many of us do not want the Lord to reject us? I do not want the rejection of the Lord. I want his favor. I want to be well-pleasing in his sight. But so many times we are rejected not when we simply do nothing, but when we do the Christian thing our way. When we choose the place of our sacrifice and do great exploits of our choosing. No sacrifice is acceptable which you chose for yourself. Because the heart of the gift, of the sacrifice, of the hurt is in submitting to what God has chosen that you should give. And I'm going to ask you a question. Why? What, where is the idolatry in stubbornness? Everybody know what the word idolatry means? It means to worship an idol. Right? Where is the idolatry in stubbornness? I mean, what is stubbornness? Sticking to your position. Holding to your certainty about a matter. Correct? Refusing to obey. So, if stubbornness is idolatry, then something is being set up as an idol that you are obeying over and above the voice of the one true God. What is that something that is the idol that you are obeying? Your will, your perspective, your desires. Stubbornness is, is, is idolatry because true worship is not saying, Lord, Lord. True worship is doing what he commands. As he says in Matthew 7 and Luke, 4, Luke 6. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we talked about it Sunday. But not everyone who says this will enter, but he who does the will of my Father. So if you say one thing with your mouth, but you live as an obedient slave to your own will, to your own ambitions, to your own lusts, to your own perspectives, then you've got this, this tension. God is telling you to make a change. And those around you are saying, that's right. This needs to change. This needs to go. But if you stick to your viewpoint, your viewpoint becomes an idol. And you may as well build a little altar and get down on your knees and burn incense to your own ego. When you stubbornly stick with your viewpoint that God is contradicting. That God is asking you to, to disobey. What I'm saying is, you cannot live a life of obedience to God until you accustom yourself to disobeying the flesh. If the flesh is implacably opposed, irreconcilably opposed to God, then every single time God tells you to do something, the most powerful native instinct in your 
life is going to tell you not to do it. You must accustom yourself to disobeying the flesh. The very thing the Lord uses when he says, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. That very denial is what he demands of your flesh. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Very same word means to prevent its legitimacy, to block its way, to undermine it. You are not going to deny your flesh until you abhor your flesh. And you are not going to abhor your flesh until you see your flesh the way God sees it. You know, I want to say something to some of us who are called to places of responsibility, like fathers or mothers or bosses or whatever. God does not require you to manually adjust the behavior of those under you. If you ask yourself, how can I change them? You are asking yourself the wrong question and you will be frustrated. They will be changed by grace alone. You need to ask yourself, how can I please you? Because if you're trying to change them, it's like steering an 18-wheeler on a 90-degree turn going 60 miles an hour when the power steering goes out. It won't happen. And what will happen is a rollover. Don't ask yourself, how can I change her? How can I change him? How can I change them? How can I change this? Say, how can I please you? How can I please you, Lord? And what is well-pleasing in his eyes? Paul said, in all things, whether present in the body or with the Lord, we are striving and we have as our one ambition to be well-pleasing to the Lord. But what is well-pleasing to the Lord? Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, and this is well-pleasing in his eyes. If he wanted sacrifices, he would ask for them. If he wanted burnt offerings, he would require them. But what? pleases the Lord, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These are well-pleasing in his eyes. What God wants is your complete surrendered obedience. He does not care as much about what you're doing through that obedience as your state of mind in surrendering to his will over your own. If you think that your task is to change people, you're playing the part of God. Your task is to be his servant to those people. And when he tells you to do things inexplicable, do them with all your heart. And when he tells you to do things that make perfect sense, do that as well. But make sure you're submitting to him and not what you think will affect the manual change that is needed in this circumstance. I can't change anybody. I can't even change myself. Amen. But I can break my will if and when he extends to me the grace to do so. And when do I know he's extending that grace? When he's speaking to me. When he's convicting my heart. When his word is near me, nigh unto me, even in my heart and in my mouth. A word of faith. He says, I can do that. 
Be not conformed. Be transformed. Amen. Don't pretend obedience. Amen. Open your mouth and say, God, I don't want you to turn me over to my stubborn will, my own perspective. I know nothing as I ought to know. I know that I cannot trust this, and I know that I can trust you, and that's all I know. Amen. Paul does not say, I know what I have believed. He says, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to his care until that day. And your flesh will fight and say, but they don't understand. It's quite possible that you're the only one who doesn't understand. It's quite possible that those around you know your voice better than you do, know your look better than you do, and sometimes even know your heart better than you do. And it's quite possible that you can please God. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord. Paul said, you received from us instruction by the authority of Christ on how you ought to please God. You have to receive instruction as if the authority of Christ were giving it to you, or else you're not going to be able to please God. And if you don't please him, you're not going to feel his favor. If you don't feel his favor, you're going to become a Cain, an accuser, a hater, a bitter old rotten, shriveled up root of a person instead of that flourishing plant that God intended. So I want to be transformed, do you? And I want to be fed from the rock with honey from God's hand, don't you? So I'm going to bring down my perspectives in Jesus' name. And every single day I'm going to stare in the mirror until I see how ugly the flesh really is. And I'm going to adjust my behavior, my attitudes, my prayer, and my preparation so that I walk out of my house, not with my hair all every which way, not with the wrong garment on my head thinking it's my hat. Amen. Like one of my nephews once did. He's not here, is he? Where is he? Oh, too bad. But I'm going to let God and others be that mirror to me, and I'm going to prepare with reality. I'm going to, I'm going to look in the mirror. I'm going to adjust. And then I'm going to be humble. And when something comes to me that would offend me, it's just going to help me go a little lower. And the devil's going to be like, yeah, I got him down. Oh, but he doesn't know he is near to the brokenhearted. He's with the lowly. And down there in that lowest place is a river of grace. Amen. And I may be down on my face, but I'm going to be there with God and his grace. Hallelujah. God, we can be different. Amen. We can be different. We don't have to live in the cycle anymore. We can break it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wasted too much time on things that won't last. And I built a kingdom out of rubble and sand. But I don't, I don't want to hold on to it all. I'm ready for the river to run and wash it away. I'm singing, come see the water. Clear. 
One drop. 